0: Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you this morning. We were here a few weeks ago just to worship. It's a privilege to be back again this morning to bring the word uh, and to give Pastor Nathan some relief on a week that he was busy serving us at the Presbytery as our clerk. Uh, he always does a great job. I don't know if anyone from the Presbytery has ever actually said to you as a congregation, thank you for sharing his gifts uh, with us in this way." So. Uh, thank you for being a congregation that not only creates some space for his academic gifts, but also uh, his ecclesiastical gifts. And you know, Nathan, it's a terrible burden to have so many gifts that everybody always wants from, from you. So uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 133. It's on page 615 of the Pew Bible. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, the songs sung by pilgrims as they traveled the highways uh, and the byways on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. Before I read Psalm 133, uh, Nathan said you might be interested, uh, just briefly, uh, in a work I've been involved with over the last four years. It kind of relates uh, to this text, uh, and that is an international interconfessional fellowship of Jewish disciples of Jesus called Yachad B'Yeshua. Yachad is the Hebrew word for together. It's the key word in verse 1 of our passage this morning. Uh, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together, or sometimes it's translated in unity. Uh, And Yeshua is the actual Hebrew name of our Lord. It's what his disciples would have called him. And so we are a fellowship of Jewish disciples of Jesus from every corner of the church. So Baptist Jews, Anglican Jews, Presbyterian Jews, that's what I am. Uh, Catholic Jews, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox Jews, uh, as well as Jews who gather in uh, other spaces. Uh, And we are together in Jesus our Messiah uh, to support and encourage one another. Uh, Because, and this is a subject for another time, uh, it's not always easy to be a Jew in the pew. Uh, But that word, yachad, together... Uh, unity is an important word in, uh, in the Bible and one of the great Old Testament promises is that God is going to take His people who have been scattered to various places, He's going to take them out of all the lands where they are and bring them together, yachad, uh, to be in His presence. And that's who our God is. He's a God who takes things that are scattered uh, and separated Uh, And he brings them together and he unites them. And in a day when people are becoming more and more fractured and more and more divided, uh, we need to hear that. And I think that there's a lot in this passage that we can draw from. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and read the text and then we'll look at uh, three things. Uh, The goodness of unity, the metaphors in this passage for unity, and then the blessings of unity. Psalm 133, uh, really a psalm about togetherness and unity. So let me read it, the word of the Lord here. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, So let me start here with unity, the goodness of unity, and the way uh, it is praised as good and pleasant. Uh, So when God calls something good, like in the beginning of this psalm, behold how good and pleasant it is, uh, that takes us back, I think, to the refrain of Genesis 1, God made light and it was good. God gathered the waters, and he brought forth the dry ground, and it was good. God brought forth all kinds of vegetation and trees to bear fruit, and it was good. Uh, So good is when something functions according to its intended purpose. Good is when creation works according to its divine design. And for brothers to dwell together in unity is good. It's it's their intended purpose. It's God's divine design. Uh, And so solitude, which has a benefit at times, and if you can never be alone with God with your own soul, that's problematic. Uh, But but solitude, which can have a benefit at times, is not our intended purpose. God didn't create us to be alone. Uh, And uh, in, in Genesis, the first time we read about something being not good is when in Genesis 2 we read, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not his intended purpose. It's not the divine design. And that scripture needs to praise unity as being good implies that unity doesn't always exist. So what is it that disrupts unity? And again, I think we're taken back to these early chapters of Genesis because no sooner does the story in Genesis start than we have a passage about brothers who fail to dwell together in unity. Two brothers bring their offerings to the Lord. One is accepted and the other is not. And the result is that there is jealousy, rivalry, and strife. And what does God say to Cain uh, in that context? Remember he says, sin is crouching at the door. So what is it that disrupts unity, the goodness of unity? It's not different personality types. It's not different socioeconomic brackets. Uh, It's not different political viewpoints. Sin masters Cain. And he takes Abel out into the field and he kills him uh, in an expression of the refusal to live in unity. Uh, So it is good for brothers to dwell in unity. It is God's intended purpose. People of faith are always part of a community of faith. Uh, the idea that you can, live in, you can live a life of faith without ever being part of a community of faith is foreign to the Bible. Think about this. Even Jesus lived in unity with his brothers. He gathered 12 disciples around him, and remember he called them his brothers, Matthew 28. Go and tell my brothers. Uh, Do you think it was easy for the sinless Savior to be a part of a community of sinners with Peter the denier and Judas the betrayer and Thomas the doubter and James and John telling him they deserve to sit at his right and left hand and oh, by the way, do you want us to call down some fire from heaven on those nasty Samaritans? But Jesus lived in community with his brothers. The presence of sinful, broken people is never a reason to avoid community. Uh, Notice in verse 1, the psalmist says that brothers dwelling in unity is not only good, right? Our intended purpose, the divine design. It's also pleasant. It's lovely and beautiful, That our communities are filled with broken and sinful people isn't something that detracts from its beauty and loveliness. It actually adds to it. It contributes to it. We see people in their sin and in their weakness and in their frailty. And instead of running from them, we run to them with the gospel and we dwell together. Uh, The classic little volume on this is a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together, uh, and Bonhoeffer is constantly reminding people, don't forget, the sinning brother is still a brother with whom you stand under the word of Christ. And he says this, he says, Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us, may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins, In Jesus Christ. Uh, To to dwell together, to to find a community where you don't have to hide your sin and your weakness, to find a community where people respond to sin with forgiveness and grace and standing with others under the word of Christ, the cross of Christ, isn't that good and pleasant and beautiful? Uh, The psalmist is commending it here. Uh, and that brings us in, in verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, to two images for unity. Uh, so kids, if you're looking to draw a picture, this is going to be your chance right here. Because the first picture of unity is that it's like precious oil running down the beard of Aaron. I can already see the pictures that are coming with all the oil you know, coming down Aaron's beard that you're going to draw. Uh, So unity is like precious oil running down the beard of Aaron. So oil was used to anoint the tabernacle. It was used to anoint the priests in Exodus 29 and 30. It was made from all kinds of fragrant spices. So it smelled wonderful. Uh, And the fact that that oil was poured over Aaron and his sons to, uh, in great measure to consecrate them As priests showed, they were being set apart, and so the oil was not just an aromatic thing. It was also a holy thing, Uh, and that's what our unity is like. Uh, It's holy, and it's aromatic. Uh, I think there's actually more going on here than just saying, like, unity, though, smells great, and it's really a holy thing. Remember again, the oil set Aaron and his sons apart to be priests in Israel. They were being consecrated to do a job, to serve in a particular kind of way, to minister to the people, to pronounce words of forgiveness, and to bless Israel. And so when the psalmist says unity is like the oil running down Aaron's beard, he's telling us what it looks like to dwell together in unity. And Eugene Peterson pointed this out. I thought it was really helpful. What does it look like to dwell together in unity? What does it mean? It means to engage in priestly service towards one another. It means that we have been set apart, as it were, to minister to and to bless one another. That's what it means to be united Just as the priests pronounce forgiveness and assure the people that their sins are forgiven, that is what we are doing for one another. Uh, Bonhoeffer in that little book makes the point every Christian needs another Christian to speak God's word to him when he is uncertain and discouraged because it's often the case that The Christ who is in my heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. And when Christ in my heart is weak, I need Christ in the word of my brother. We need the ministry of other believers. So here's the point of the illustration, I think. Unity is discovered in priestly service. When you are speaking words of gospel encouragement to someone when you are assuring them that the same promises that apply to you apply to them, when you remind them that neither your sin nor their sin is more powerful than the forgiving grace of God, when you bear and share their burdens because none of us is completely sufficient, don't you find in those times just how united you are uh, to the people that you are serving Uh, How can you be divided from someone whom you are ministering to in that way? Conversely, when divisions arise and when unity is fractured or can't be found, you can almost be sure that people are not serving one another. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times when divisions may be absolutely necessary. I'm just saying that in all of my years in the church, almost every division I've seen comes from exaggerating non-essential doctrines, exaggerating personal preferences, holding on to grudges, failing to love and serve other people as Scripture commands. Colossians 3, put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect unity. Uh, What does this mean for the church? It means there's no real unity without sacrificial service. Uh, There is agreement, there is consensus. There is getting along on theology, on politics, on what color the carpet should be, whatever it is that people get animated about. But that is not the oil dripping down Aaron's beard. That is not the holy, fragrant aroma of priestly service. The second image here, the beginning of verse 3, we'll build here a little bit, is that of the dew of Hermon. So Mount Hermon is the highest peak in the region. Um, It's uh, over 9,000 feet at its highest point, which I know because I looked it up in a book that told me it was over 9,000 feet at its highest point. Uh, You know, it's the kind of things you just sprinkle into sermons, I guess. Uh, It's high. That's all you need to know. It's a high mountain. It was known for its abundant dew. And in a culture that depended on water for life, that dew would refresh the ground and make the whole surrounding area fertile. And I think we all know how dwelling in unity with others does that. It's refreshing. It renews us. It's life-giving. It's like dew on the mountains. It makes us more fertile in everything we're trying to do for the Lord. Our faith can be burning low And the fellowship and the unity of the saints reinvigorates us and allows us to be fruitful again. Uh, And when we get to this second metaphor, we discover that it shares in common uh, a piece of imagery with the first metaphor. And maybe you already noticed it. It's the image of descending. The oil runs down the beard of Aaron. Down on the collar of his robes, and the dew falls down on Mount Zion. In Hebrew, it's the same verb three times in two verses. It runs down, it runs down, it runs down. What is the point? Uh, We are supposed to see unity as something that comes down from above. Where does every good and perfect gift come from? James. 117, it says, it comes down from the Father. Unity and harmony and togetherness among brothers comes down from the Father as a gift of His grace. Uh, so we don't make or manufacture unity. It's a gracious, divine gift, uh, not a human accomplishment. It comes down from heaven. In the gospel because when Jesus redeems you and he redeems me we are now inextricably bound to one another because we are both bound to him and so we don't create unity it's why scripture says maintain the unity of the spirit Ephesians 4 and it's why unity is altogether different from uniformity So uniformity is something that you can produce by the flesh. I will only hang out with people like me, people who agree with me, people who think like me. Uh, Unity can only be produced by the Spirit. Because unity allows people to live together and accept differences without devouring each other, without conquering each other, without demanding conformity. Uh, because we're able to hold on to the same Savior. Uh, I am very worried in our politicized, partisan culture right now. I am very worried about how, in this moment, churches are increasingly becoming places where people go not to be challenged and changed, but to be affirmed in what they already believe. They are becoming less formative, they shape us, and more performative, we use them to broadcast something about ourselves. Uh, They are places where we can be surrounded by those who think like us so that we can feel safe and right about all the things that we are, uh, we think are important. I have always been very struck by the way that Jesus called both a tax collector, and a zealot to be part of his band of disciples. One who had been working for the current regime and one who had been working to overthrow the current regime. And he called them to be united in him. I don't think they immediately aligned their views on how to think about Rome. Uh, they may have never come to the same view on Rome. Uh, But Christ-centered people can have different and sometimes even opposite opinions and still be united because they are following him. And in any church there are all kinds of differences, doctrinal differences, liturgical differences, political differences, Differences on whether preachers and guest preachers are preaching too long or too short, you know, those kinds of things. None of those differences undo the unity that God creates. It only highlights that unity because in the midst of differences, we confess that God gave his son not because we were the best or the brightest or the rightest about things, but because we were sinful and needy and yet loved. And we confess together that we are standing underneath that one forgiving word of Jesus, that word who is Jesus. Uh, So we need to see unity uh, as beautiful priestly service. We need to see it coming down from God to refresh us in spite of our differences. These are uh, the metaphors. And then finally, uh, at the end of verse 3, The blessings of unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Uh, What is everlasting life? You know, you ask this question and sometimes people say, I'm going to golf forever. I'm going to sail forever. I'm going to mountain bike forever, all downhill without ever having to pedal uphill. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, But the Bible never says heaven is eternal golfing or sailing or mountain biking. But in Psalm 133, there is something that we do that the Bible says is characteristic of eternal life, and it's dwelling together in unity. It's the fellowship of the saints. Uh, When you enjoy the warmth of fellowship, when you are with brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's laughter and joy and renewal in the gospel. Don't you just sometimes say, this is what heaven is going to be like. This is what glory is going to be like. This is what is in store for us. And right, we're right back to verse 1. Uh, it's good uh, to dwell in unity. It's what we were created for. It's the divine design. It's why God's gathering us uh, to be a new humanity that in Christ functions as it's intended to. Uh, And I might just say here that um, it's always good to remember gatherings on the church calendar are never just social events to keep people busy or classes to cram more doctrine into our heads. Everyone is an opportunity to experience the joy and blessing and anticipation of that life forevermore. Uh, And so the psalm ends here, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Um, Where does God command the blessing? It just says there God commands the blessing. I'm not sure that I've always read this correctly. Um, I used to think, well, there the Lord commands the blessing. Wherever brothers are united, that's where God commands the blessing. And certainly that's true in a sense. I think it's not quite the point of the psalm. Uh, remember, this is a pilgrim psalm. The pilgrims are on their way up to Jerusalem for the feast. And if you look at the phrase just before this one about the dew of Hermon, it says the dew of Hermon is falling on Mount Zion. Uh, there, the Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, the place of God's presence. And then the psalmist says, there the Lord commands the blessing. When all God's people are gathered together in God's holy presence and they live together under God's reign. There is abundant life. There is life forevermore. It's a beautiful picture of the fullness of the kingdom. Uh, That's what we have at the very end of Scripture, at the conclusion of the book of Revelation. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven right there's that descending language again Uh, and we all serve in that holy place as priests to our god that is the ultimate good and pleasant life where brothers dwell together in unity Uh, so just to kind of wrap this up how does this blessing of unity become ours because i think that we can admit that unity has not just been a problem been a problem for the world Uh, right now. It's been a problem for the church. It's ultimately a problem of the heart, which is often filled with anger and strife and quarrelsomeness and division. None of us can claim a right to this uh, blessedness of life forevermore with the Lord. And this is where I think we have to look to the Lord of Psalm 133, who also became our brother. And remember that the Lord who commands the blessing of Psalm 133 is also the Lord who became a brother to make possible the very unity that he is commanding and commending in this psalm. Uh, Paul, in Romans 8, describes Jesus as the firstborn among many brothers Hebrews 2 says he he took on flesh and blood so that in every respect he could be made like his brothers. Uh, And that passage goes on to describe Jesus as a faithful and merciful high priest, like Aaron the high priest. Jesus serves you. His service is atonement and reconciliation and forgiveness. He is our peace who has broken down every barrier so that brothers can dwell together in unity with each other. So the Lord who commands brotherly unity is the Lord who took on our nature, uh, who became a brother to deal with our sin, uh, to deal with the penalty of all of our strife and hatred toward our brothers. And this is what makes unity possible. We can stand under the cross and be truly united. Uh, over the past few years, churches have had their ability, or ha- ha- sorry, over the past few years, churches have had their ability to dwell together in unity tested. I would love to tell you authoritatively, we are now on the other side of that and we'll never have to do that ever again. Uh, but it's entirely likely that greater tests still lie before us. And we need to approach the future with absolute clarity that whatever separates us is less important than what unites us, the confession that Christ is Lord. And we need to take that confession, we need to put it into practice in priestly serving one another. uh, refreshing and renewing fellowship, and by maintaining the unity of the Spirit and love. And so uh, dwell together in that good and pleasant unity through Christ, uh, our brother, our great high priest, our Lord, and experience the blessings of life forevermore. Amen? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we thank you for the gift of unity, a gift of your grace that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to maintain that unity uh, by loving one another in service, in fellowship, uh, in care, in encouragement, Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would protect the unity that we seek to maintain. We pray, uh, for, uh, for this church, for all of your churches, uh, that we would be a light and a witness to uh, the good and perfect gift that you bestow from above in Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.